Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, and welcome business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner, are here every Wednesday morning live, every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern and replayed throughout the week. We obviously talk about the world of sports and statistics and business, and if you want to join the conversation, Shane and I would love to have you on the air this morning. Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Um, I've been tweeting a lot this week, Shane, at our Twitter handle, at WMoneyBall. And, of course, you can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So how are you this morning, Shane? Excellent. I'm doing well. That's great to hear. We're obviously getting ready to head down to Miami for the Super that Bowl radio row. That is very exciting. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to I'm, I mean, I'm looking forward to Miami just straight up, but I'm also looking forward to kind of, you know, all the kind of hype around the Super Bowl and stuff like that. Even even though this is the first one in a while where I haven't had a strong rooting interest, I'm, I'm really excited for the game. Well, so for those of our listeners that are first-time listeners, we hope, obviously, we know we have millions of listeners around the world, but for our first-time listeners, especially the first half hour is the what caught our eye in sports segment that we have a guest at 8 30 and we have a guest again at nine o'clock and then at 9 30 shane and i again we'll talk about what caught our eye in sports and of course we'll obviously have to make predictions for this year's super bowl so i mean i might as well lead off and say obviously the biggest news in sports has obviously been obviously the horrible and untimely death and passing of kobe bryant and his daughter gianna i mean i think it caught us all by shock and surprise i was actually at the gym at the time and my friend texted me this is when the tmz report came out but before it had been confirmed and i was like well that has to be a mistake like how can that possibly be and then it of course on on you know all of it came out and unwound and what was your first thought about it as someone that was a celtic fan for a long time well yeah yeah i mean like you know i mean i i certainly have lived most of my life um you know uh watching Kobe score against teams that I preferred to win type of thing. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've never really been somebody that was cheering for Kobe, but I obviously respected the immense talent that he had, talent and energy that he brought to the game. And it was it was devastating to sort of, I mean, anybody anybody passing away that young and with family members is, is devastating. And I was, um, I was really especially touched. I don't know if you saw kind of Shaq's uh, uh, reaction. And I, I thought that was... I mean, obviously, the emo- just the raw emotion of it was very touching, but also just the kind of message that you should really just kind of you should reach out to the people who are, are who are dear to you more often because you just really can't take for granted that everybody's going to be around in your life forever. Yeah, some of the interesting reactions to me, just from a statistics, not from a really a statistics point of view, but the emotional point of view, also was I don't know if you knew, but Kendrick Perkins and Kevin Durant had this long feud in the NBA for a long period of time. Obviously, Kendrick Perkins, former player now, yeah. but you know, big Boston Celtics. Center. He called Durant soft. They got into a verbal battle back and forth. So after Kobe passed away, he tweeted about Ke- uh, Kevin Durant and said, "Look, let's bury the hatchet here. Come on, yeah, you know, let's yeah. keep the bigger picture on things. And you know, it's a game. It's no, basketball. And, and there's really no. I mean, it's it, it's not like you know, the, it, it's still like such a tragedy. But if, if if sort of little moments like that can kind of come out of this, it's nice that there's some maybe some positive. You know, this that at the minimum, this can all give us kind of that perspective that it's really. 
all this all, all this kind of negative stuff that we have kind of have towards people in life it's it's not necessary so where were your thoughts about you know we always talk about the pantheon of players yeah. and obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. i don't think anyone's debating that kobe bryant is in that i mean elite of the elite pantheon yeah. of players yeah like probably i mean certainly i, I would I, I mean i i guess i don't know enough about kind of basketball history to kind of rank him within this group but i would i would assume most reasonable people would put him in like kind of the top ten basketball players of all time. I, I, I think he would um, have to be. I mean, you know, the only other people, in my view, since I am sort of a basketball yeah. historian too, that you would have to put in is obviously Michael Jordan. Yeah, LeBron James. LeBron James would have to be in that set. You'd obviously Wilt Chamberlain. You'd have to put in that set. Yeah, and then you know with Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, there's well, been a lot of really ones. great basketball right. players. Those are the, those so are the, and, maybe and, Oscar Robertson, and, Bill Russell. But I'm saying you, know, you start to run out of people that you would even consider putting in the set. And I, I think yeah. the, the part that impressed me the most about Kobe, besides, again, similar to Michael Jordan, he was a great two-sided player, which means he was a great defensive player as well, is that, I, I, I've said this stat before, but people may not remember it. So Michael Jordan obviously won six rings. He won three rings, then he played baseball for two years, and then he came back and, and won three more rings. I Well, I have you guess. How many players were overlapping between those two groups of three? So he won three. Didn't play for two years and then won another three. How many teammates were overlapping between those two sets of three? Scotty Pippen was. He at was. Least, he right? won all of so, them with him. Yeah. Um, you can stop because the answer okay, is zero. So, so that, it, it's it, it, only it, Scotty uh, Pippen. Okay, I see. Yeah. And so the yeah. part that amazes me the most about Kobe isn't the three that he won with Shaq. I mean, yes, that's great. I mean, I hate to say it. Shaq was, you know, my fact, we should put well, that, Shaquille O'Neal in the top ten. Also. I mean, that was that we was a put, very yeah, we, dominant team. Right. We yeah. should put Shaquille O'Neal in that top oh, ten yes, of all time agreed, too. Agreed. Um, he then won two more, and I'm not saying Paul Gasol wasn't a very good center, yeah. but I mean, that was the second best player on that team. Yeah. And so it's the two rings he won in a row with Paul Gasol and others, and so that to me is the most impressive part. And that's why, again, I put LeBron James in this remarkable era of greatness, even though, quote-unquote, he only has three rings. He took an awful Cleveland yeah. team to no, the I finals. Mean, he carried, he, he, then, carried he didn't have to carry Miami as much because he had Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. And then, I mean, he took Kyrie Irving, great player, yeah. and a bunch of other guys and beat the greatest team of all time. And now he's probably, in my view, he's possibly going to take the Lakers to the finals. Yeah. And so, I mean, and, to and, me, and, that you could argue, same credit I give Tom Brady, Brady for. As you know, I'm no fan of Tom Brady as, you know, because I hate the Patriots, but I'm a fan of his as what he's accomplished. If you look at the all the different teams and styles that he's taken to the Super Bowl, you got to give him the same yeah. exact type of credit. Yeah, and I and I think um, you know, as, as far as kind of comparing these these players, um the one thing again I think is to sort of LeBron's credit over 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 perhaps Kobe's is just that you know LeBron not only did it with different teams but different coaching like different systems Great you know point. like um, Kobe did have Phil Jackson for all of those championships he had him for all and, and let's remember I, I hate to say it he was playing with yeah. house money but Phil Jackson already had six rings at the time with the yeah. Bulls and two as a player. So Phil Jackson is sitting here. He's got two rings on his yeah. fingers. He's got six rings in his pockets. Yeah. And then he starts coaching Kobe and Shaq. So, yeah, Phil Jackson has 11 rings as a coach. But, you know, I hate to say it. Who's the luckiest guy on the planet? Six with Michael Jordan and five oh, with Kobe Bryant. Oh yeah, no, Bryant. that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, no, and I, and I sort of, you know, I, I think it is kind of, um, it, it, it's, 
what what always impressed me by Kobe was about Kobe was I mean there's the gaudy numbers but I I, I don't really know how to kind of put those in context. I, it, it's really he always seemed he had you could tell the the kind of drive that he had. I mean he brought up Tom Brady. I I, I think that kind of like tenacity or or, or kind of uh, drive to win was something that everybody could kind of pick up on around Kobe. So what made me, let me make a transition just from Kobe also. You'll see my connection in a second to the Super Bowl. So you talk about, you even brought up Tom Brady about never giving up. A lot of people thought, for example, let's talk about that Atlanta Super Bowl, where people thought that game was over. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced of this. You take any quarterback, any quarterback and coach in the history of the NFL, and you put them in that game at where Tom Brady and Bill Pelichick are, and they do not win that game. I'm confident in saying you could put yeah. anybody in that position, and I don't think they win that game. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, like, I think you probably put Tom Brady and Bill Belichick back in that game, and nine they don't times win out of ten, they don't win that game. A lot of kind of very lucky stuff had to happen along the way as well for that uh, for that mirac- miraculous thing to happen. But, uh, but I, I kind of agree. I mean, I think that you know. Um, it's it, we 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 talk a little bit about like kind of athletes trying to like getting the zone and what 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 kind of you know sort of different strategies they can have for doing that. But I think you know in in something when athlete elite athletes are in that zone, it really is they they do sort of see themselves as unstoppable. Well, and and, and I think you know you have to have an an extraordinary amount of confidence to keep, even think, oh, well, I'm just going to leave my team back down from 28 to 3. Well, like 15 minutes Well, left. so let me talk, let me transition to now back to what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. So what we, here's a couple things that made yeah. me think of that. One is, um, at, I know it's a totally different sport, but at the President's Cup, you remember how the U.S. team was way down? Mm-hmm. Tiger Woods, rather than rushing himself out on Saturday, remember the big controversy, yeah, he chose to yeah. sit himself and he goes, I trust my teammates. Then what happened is when those guys performed well, they were like, wow, Tiger Woods trusts me. And so, you know, it just reminded me of that. Yeah. It reminded me of that. The other thing that happened recently, there was an 04 and our, you know, this was not necessarily, th- it was on our sheet. Um, this was maybe Zach Drapkin, our assistant producer, provided us this. There was a O for eight thousand three hundred and seventy eight streak that was broken in the NBA this year. Did you just re- just no. yesterday? Did you see it? No. Okay. What do you think are the chances of a team down seventeen points with two minutes and forty five seconds left to win the game? That's the streak that was broken. Wow. The Sacramento Kings were down by seventeen points. With two minutes and forty nine seconds left, and they came back to win the game. And according to you know whatever some stat cast or something, it literally broke a streak of eight thousand three hundred seventy eight. And this is what I want to talk about. Let's now transition to analytics, which is a big part of our show. I think that data is underestimating the actual probability because someone could say, "Well, so what's so rare?" You know, you and me and Adi and uh, Cade, we talk about all the time. You know, one in 5,000, 10,000 events happen because yep. lots of events. There's lots of coin flipping going on in There's the world. There's lots of games in the lots NBA every season. Lots of games. Lots of games. Well, in fact, we can count how many games there are, right? Yep. So there's, you know, 30 teams roughly play 80. You know, there's 30 teams that are playing. Well, they, they have to play each other. So, you know, let's say there's 1,200 games a year. You figure, so once every seven, eight years, this is going to happen. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where we're seeing a truncated sequence. Like, we could play 100,000 games, and I think we'd see maybe one or two of these. Like, to me, it's, you know what I'm saying? Like, we can't just use, well, 
so the odds are one out of 8,379 now. I don't think that's true. I think, don't you think that the odds are much lower than that? Like, just because most teams, like, in that situation would would, would just kind of play it, would not even, weren't even trying to come back, basically? No, no, or no. no. I just think that in some sense, well, first of all, it's only since these things have been measured. Yeah, so, first of all, there might have been 20,000 other games. Yeah. Um, no, I, I just think maybe I'm thinking about it the wrong way. Maybe I'm just thinking this event was such a residual outlier. Yeah. Like the true probability was one in 50,000. Yeah. Yeah, and we right. just happened to get some stochastic combination of events yeah. that got us to see one. Yeah. But that we wouldn't see a – like the random error term is not going to be yeah. that positive for – Millenniums yeah, again, yeah, yeah, and we'll yeah. never see that That's again. Probably, and that probably is true. It's, I mean, it, it does sound kind of. It sounds like an incredibly rare event. I mean, you well, know, even it, just do the following: if you just add up what the twenty-four second clock yeah. does, right? I yeah. mean, even if you just didn't take a shot for that much, and they had to foul you every time, yeah. so now you have to miss basically every free throw. They have to make a bunch of threes. There have to be either or a bunch of turnovers. I mean, you just start to, you know. It'd be fun to kind of model that particular, it, it, what what sequence of events would could possibly lead to such a, or, like, a, you know, kind of a fast scoring rate for one team versus the other team. The thing I like about the way you're thinking about it is that's the kind of question where years ago, in some sense, without, I'll call it big data computing, yeah. There'd be no, I mean, yes, you could write out probabilistically a sequence, or you could just simulate yeah. 10 trillion games. Yeah. Some of the, and, you know, use the, but now the question is what data would you use? You'd have to take it from that point forward. At the, What data would you use to do that simulation? Would you take all games where a team was down, let's call it 17 points or something within that window? Well, or would I mean, you the take nice, just the marginal The nice thing about kind of breaking it down into, say, components. You, you know, is is you can actually borrow strength off a lot of different games because the trouble with you know kind of only focusing on games where you have that amount of deficit is that you you just don't have as many games to kind of right. go in go into your modeling. No, but my but question it, to you was a little more specific, which is a lot of our listeners are probably saying, "Look, I'd love to do this kind of simulation." Yeah. But I can't, as you're saying, I can't pick games that are exactly 17 points down and yeah. exactly 249 left. How do you choose a window? Like, yeah. how many, like, would you say 13 to 19? Because if someone's down 30, that's different than 17. If there's eight minutes left, that's different than 249 left. How would you build well, your I, window I, I, so I would, that you would call them comparable? Would it be, here's what. I think it would probably be on some kind of win probability, a, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know. Because we're like that, an old married couple. Yeah, that's what well, I was thinking. Right, yeah. I mean, I would sort of say, like, among, like, game, I mean, I assume that the win probability uh, for the Kings was, like, you know, less than 5% or something like that I would imagine in that game. That, uh, well, I would no. I would imagine uh, well, maybe maybe one percent. I was about to say maybe know. Zach Drapkin or Matt Datz can take a look at this. I would take a guess that it was under the level of specificity of any website you could go to. Which means I bet the uh, I, I forget who they were playing in the game. Yeah. I apologize. I bet the other team maybe it was the Wizards. I bet they were a ninety nine point nine percent win probability, and it doesn't say ninety nine point nine three nine seven. I bet they had to have been I, well. If it's not happened in 8,000-plus games, how could they not be? Just if you use brute empiricism, how could they not yeah. be a 99.9% chance of winning the game? Yeah, so I would probably de- take some window around that. You know, I would basically be like, you know, well, this is probably the rarest of these rare events, but the rare events I'm going to call, like, you know, ones with less than 1% probability, and then you could kind of go from there. But you could also kind of pick it. You could kind of break it down 
model it more mechanistically, being like, well, with the 24-second shot clock, I need to score. Right. Te- this team needs to score on average every nine, 10 seconds, and they need, like, no tur- – you know, they also need to force these many turnovers. And you can then – then you can, you know, when you're talking about, like, well, how many teams have had that many turnovers in this amount of time, then you can borrow strength right. off of a lot of games where, you know, it does not you, you're not kind of restricting yourself to these very rare situations with less than, like, 1% win probability. And thanks to our producer, Matt Datsch, who just types things on our screen all the time. Um, it was 99.9% yeah. on ESPN. Yeah. So this is Eric Bradlow. I'm Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner, here every Wednesday morning live here on Sirius XM 132. If you want to join the conversation, very easy to do. If you have a favorite Kobe moment, or if you have a favorite rare probability moment, I talked about an O of 8,378-1, it's easy to join the conversation. Please call us at one. 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 or you can also tweet us at W Moneyball. You know, something else, and by the way, just to finish this last this conversation on one other thing, imagine you did the following. This would be really interesting to do. Imagine you took all situations in all sports that were 99% plus of supposed win probability at the time, and you saw how many of them actually were miscalibrated. The reason I want to study this, by the way, is to, would you agree with the following? Could that be, maybe it's a noisy measure, but could that be a measure of both lack of model fit and I'll call it the degree of randomness at a sport. In other words, we're going to calibrate every sport's win probabilities using whatever models they are and say, wow, I see. When basketball says 99.9, it's really 99.9. When football says it, wow, it's only 97%. Wouldn't that be a neat way? I'm just asking you, wouldn't that be a neat way to basically say which sports statistical models need improvement? Or maybe which sports do we underestimate the stochasticity of? Well, I, I, I mean, I think, I think you the, see where I'm thinking. No, about I, it. I, I, I am, I am, and, and, and but uh, you know, and and it's sort of like, uh, I, I mean, I think the two concepts are connected. I just, you know, at the, kind of like let's take an extreme point where a, 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 a sport was literally a coin flip. You know, every game was literally a coin flip. That's probably maximally stochastic, but it's rel- it's relatively easy to calibrate the probabilities for that. Right. 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 Um. And so I think, I mean, I I do think that the extent to which a, 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 a sports like probabilities are miscalibrated is some measure of how stochastic or random that sport is. It's really kind of a measure, I think, of the randomness in the sport that we can't model. That's, so, so, yeah, so, so, that, I'm telling you, know, you we're an old, because yeah. the sentence I was just going to say yeah. is, would you agree that given you know what you and I do for a living now, which is the data we have about sports is improving? We obviously have more sophisticated models than, you know, I'm a PhD student 10 years before you, but that you and I had as PhD. We don't have to run linear regressions and stuff. We can run much more sophisticated models. Given the data and the sophistication of models, we can probably squeeze out a large fraction of the explainable variation. And then there is just going to yeah. be some stochasticity, stochasticity left that we can't explain. No, I agree. I agree completely. I mean, I always kind of think of the, you know, I always think of the playoffs across the different sports as kind of a measure of the stochasticity inherent to the sport. And that's one where, I mean, I, it would be cool, interesting to look at kind of, you know, like, 
playoff odds going into like, you know, the Stanley Cup playoffs versus the NBA playoffs versus the NFL playoffs and just kind of see how how well they basically match up to the actual outcomes. And I think that would give you a sense of sort of how stochastic at least the playoff situation is in each of these sports, which is, you know, always what I think of when I think of the randomness of sports, specifically like the randomness of hockey, where we're we're playing through this season right now. But, I mean, most people, you know, agree that it's not, you know, the the playoffs are almost like a second season. You do select out some of the teams, but after that, it's, you know, like how you did in that first regular season is only minorly predictive of how you're going to do in the playoffs. You know, it reminds me, one of my favorite examples from graduate school is, let's imagine a bivariate scatter, you know, obviously Don Rubin, someone you and I both know well. One of his favorite papers of mine, which is an old paper of his from educational testing, is let's imagine a bivariate scatter. We're on the x-axis. Let's say you have something like he was working at ETS at the time. Let's imagine you had SAT score on the x-axis. And let's imagine on the y-axis you had GPA in college. And people always say, I wonder how predictive SAT scores are of GPA in college. Like, What is it actually predictive of? If you look at it, it actually looks like a pretty tight bivariate scatter. And it looks like it's, you know, around the, you know, a, a line. Yeah. In other words, there's a prediction. But let's say you take a school like the University of Pennsylvania. So now you slice off a certain percentage of the population that only do well on their SATs. There's actually almost no correlation between GPA, sorry, uh, SAT score and GPA. And as a matter of fact, what Don finds actually is that it's actually, if you draw a picture of an ellipse, can actually be negative. So it's one of his classic self-selection things that once the school selects talented people, there's no relationship. Like you go out to people here on Locust Walk, they all have high SAT scores. Yeah, no, I mean... And it's the similar thing. In hockey, you've already eliminated, I'll call, the second hump of teams that just aren't good. And after that, there's not that much information left in what their win-loss record is. Yeah, no, no, that's right. And I mean, like, I think baseball, the playoffs are kind of... you know, I, I view them as very random compared to the regular season because baseball has probably done the greatest degree of selection, right? I mean, it really Absolutely. is only great point. You know, eight teams out of out of out of thirty-two or whatever. You know, we've we've 30. been doing Wharton Moneyball for five and a half years now, and I don't think any of us have ever made that really good point that you just made, which is the greater the degree of selection, yeah. in some sense the less information that leaves in what's left because you've already mm-hmm. done a huge amount of selection. Yeah. That's a great yeah. point. I, yeah. think, I think a lot of our listeners should think about this. Like when you you know go through lots and lots of resumes and you screen people on characteristics. Yeah, well, then what you have left at the end is a very elite group of people that there's probably undifferentiated performance yeah. among. And so yeah. I, I like that idea that the more selection you do, in some sense, the less you're left with to select among them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Or, or certainly, you know, like if, if there's if the, if you've created sort of a, a pool of people that are essentially identical, like, right. like there's not going to be any variation to actually have, you know, variation in performance afterwards. Now, since you brought up baseball, one of the things that caught my eye in sports is um, I'm shocked at the win-loss records, predictions, or, you know, the over-unders that Caesar Sportsbooks came out this year about baseball. So I'm going to give you a team. Don't look in the notes. Oh, no, I'm not going to look. Uh, don't look. Um, so I'm going to give you a team, and you tell me what you think, not what you think they're going to win, what you think the Caesar Sportsbook over-under is for their win-loss. Okay. okay. Now, picking a specific team. Okay, let's pick the Houston Astros. Oh, uh, 
Remember, these things, first of all, just explain mm-hmm. to our listeners before yeah. you give your number why typically you wouldn't necessarily pick a really high number. Like, why not pick 100, 103, 105? Like, they've won that before. Like, can tell our listeners well, how you, to... No, so, I mean, this is like, you know, kind of a really nice example of regression to the mean or what, something that you'd want to kind of regress to the mean. I mean, you know, the Houston Astros won over 100 games last year. Correct. And some part of that is because they're a very good team, but some part of that is also because, you know, the breaks went their way. Uh, any team that wins over 100 games, it's, you know, their their success is some mixture of their true talent and kind of a they positive They won 107 residual. last year, by the way. So what do you think the number is for the Astros? Well, I would I would bring them down to at least 95 myself. Oh, you're, so you're very calibrated. Yeah. The answer is 97. Yeah, let's that's go, still probably too high. Uh, let's go with the evil empire in your mind. Oh, man. The New York Yankees. So how, what do you think the one loss, the prediction of the over-under? And by the way, the Yankees won 103 last year. I would, uh, I mean, I would be, I would regress those guys a little less because I think their competition's dropping off. Uh, but uh, I would, I would put them at maybe, you know, ninety-seven, ninety-eight. Game. I've never seen a number this big, a hundred and one. Really? Yeah, I, I don't, I, I think. As as a general rule of thumb, I don't think you'd ever want to actually predict. No, they a, did get a Garrett Cole, right? Team. They did get Garrett Cole. They did. But no, I'm saying, I mean, I don't ever remember in all yeah. our years of Wharton Moneyball. Do you ever remember any single team being over a hundred? No, no, and I, I and it's because you know I, it, I I think you do very poorly predicting any particular team to be over a hundred games in any season. There's going to be probably some team that exceeds a hundred games. Well, last but year there were at least the Dodgers, yeah. the Yankees, and the Astros. There may have been I, I forget. Yeah. There may have been one other, but. I think you and I would take the bet of any team yeah. being over a hundred, but any. And by the way, just so you know, the Dodgers, the lowly Dodgers, are only predicted at ninety nine. Well, yeah, no, I, I guess we're, I guess we're all looking forward to a Yankees Dodgers World Series this year. <laughs> I'm I not looking forward to that at all. I but I don't know about that. Yeah. At no, but all. I mean, you know, you can kind, of, you only have to look at the Yankees season last year to kind of be a little bit. I don't know, cautious about predicting something like over 100 games. I mean, they exceeded 100 games last year, and I thought it was kind of a minor miracle given the injuries that they had during that season. And I guess that's what maybe Caesars is doing is saying, like, well, that's probably not going to happen again, so they're they're likely to uh, to uh, go over 100 uh, once more. But a lot can happen in a baseball season. And, yeah. and we always have one or two surprising teams that kind of pop up. Yeah, actually, thanks to our producer, Matt Dat, Just to let you know, last year's over-unders, okay, the Astros were at 97.5. So now they're at whatever, nine, the same, basically. Yeah. The Yankees go from 96.5 last season to 101 this season. The Red Sox, I don't know their number for this season, but last season were 95.5. Obviously, they yeah. didn't make it there. Yeah. And the Dodgers were at 95 last season. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so that to me, a five-game shift upward when you're yes. already in the right tail of the distribution is a huge shift. No, in the that's over-under. right, and I mean, I think sort of anecdotally, I mean, I think we all are kind of seeing the Yankees as pro- as emerging. You know, I mean, in part because of the Red Sox and Astros kind of like seeming seemingly stepping back a bit. The Yankees are kind of are, are certainly our early favorites um, in the American League, but even even with that. I don't think I would put any team as a, a predicted value over 100. 100. Yeah, so let's do a little bit of transition to football, because this is a big game that's being played on yeah. Sunday. Now, while you may not be as interested as always... Oh, I'm, 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 I'm excited. I'm excited for it. Well, I, I have just, two... I just qu- want to remind everybody that the Patriots aren't in it. But I have two quick questions for you, because both of the coaches, head coaches, yeah. in this Super Bowl, you should be thanking. 
because both of them gave the Patriots a Super Bowl. Yeah. Now, let me expl- now, which one are you more thankful for? I just want to just make sure our listeners know. Obviously, Andy Reid was the coach of the Eagles yeah. when the Eagles played the Patriots in the Super Bowl. This is the famous Donovic McNabb throwing up. You know, we had yeah. T.O. coming back off injury who caught, I think, I forget, seven, eight passes. He oh, was he the was best in- Eagles player in the Super incredible. Bowl, he and incredible. he was basically on a broken leg or whatever he was. And then, of course, who was the offensive coordinator, the brilliant genius for the Atlanta Falcons? When the Falcons, Kyle Shanahan, yeah, when when yeah. as you remember no, Matt I Ryan mean, on third man, and one, and they're in and they're in field Whew. goal range, yeah. which would have ended the game, yeah. and he has he has Matt Ryan drop back and he gets sacked, and then all of a sudden they're out of field goal range. You all we you know what I'm talking about? That, that no, would have ended it, the it game. Is, it is tough to. Yeah, who it, do you thank more? No, I don't know. I, I mean. You know, it, it is a really tough choice between Andy Reid's clock management and Kyle Shanahan running it like three times with the twenty-eight to three lead, oh, and, run, and not running for. it, not running it when they were in field goal range, and they would have gone up ten points. Yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, more, like two minutes. What, left what in I the meant game. is really only only running it three times. Oh, and oh, like only, it, yeah. essentially, you've got to pick one half. of these two guys. Come oh, on. Oh yeah, I uh, I think. Um, I, I, I guess I'll, th- I'll be more thankful for Kyle Shanahan because that's just kind of a bigger moment and everything. And I think it's a more improbable kind of comeback. I mean, if if in in this counterfactual, Andy Reid does manage the clock a bit better in, in, in the Super Bowl, uh, in the 2004 Super Bowl, the Patriots still could have easily won that game. Uh, whereas the Patriots to come back on the Falcons really needed everything to break their way, including very poor kind of offensive strategy from the Falcons. I, I think you and I have talked about this. You know, while Tom Brady's 6-3 and three in Super Bowls, certainly nothing to sneeze at, you and I both agree that's about right in the following sense. People want to complain they shouldn't have beaten the Seahawks, you know, if they had just run the ball to beast mode. Yeah. Okay, maybe. You know, and you could make an argument, um, you know, well, maybe they shouldn't have beaten the Falcons. Okay, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Giants got two Super Bowls off them, and the Giants were clearly not the yeah. better team. So, I mean, I always think about when I think about the Patriots, I think six and three is about right. Yeah. No, I mean, I I do think I I mean, no matter how you kind of slice Tom Brady's record again, you, you know, like kind of win loss record, you always end up at like somewhere between point seven and point eight, like regular season against AL, uh, you know, against AFC East, against NFC, you know, no matter kind of how you slice up the data, it always seems to be somewhere in like point seven, point eight range. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, the super that uh, if, if you kind of flipped coins, you know, with a baseline rate of about point seven in the Super Bowl, something like six and three is around what you would get. I think it's extra impressive that he, you know, I mean, most quarterbacks that have like a, a, a regular season record in the like point seven in the seventy to eighty percent win which range, only a few of which there's only a few, do not kind of bring that forward into the playoffs because again, you are playing against better teams in the playoffs. So so for, for them to kind of have continued that rate in the playoffs, I think is extra impressive. But given that they seemingly can win about 75% of the time, even in the playoffs, something like 6-3 and three is about right. And, of and course, then once you start going to the individual games, you're like, yeah, okay, so that, that those couple Giants coin flips didn't go their way, but the, the Atlanta and Philadelphia coin flip, the first Philadelphia coin flip did go their way. Right. Never mind that one against the Rams to start this whole thing off. That was... Yeah, that's a Another Very game where they were a improbable. massive, un, uh, improbable, massive. and a massive underdog. And of course, you always remind me the one that they lost to the Eagles. Boy, Brady had a bad game. Did he throw for five hundred or six hundred yards? Did not have a bad game. Not I, joking. I, I think did he throw for five or six hundred yeah, yards in that in game? In fact, do I? I, I, th- I saw an article. Uh, 
uh, just uh, yesterday, uh, Pro Football Focus has gone back and kind of um, essentially ranked the quarterback performances in the Super Bowl for which be... for which they have data, and that's actually Brady's top performance in the Super Bowl. It would Bowl. be his top performance. I have yeah. to believe that Steve Young's performance in the Super Bowl, where he threw for like seven touchdown yeah, passes, I think the, the, or, top, the top one, I, or Doug the, Williams, Aaron against... Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers Super Bowl actually oh, okay. is the top rated one. Greater and the one than that Phil they, Sims? Well, again, they only Pro Football Focus has only graded a subset of oh, all okay. the Super Bowls, so they they've had the last I think twenty or so. Plus a few selected ones from back. So that Phil Sims one, for example, I don't think is in there. Well, we've talked about basketball. We've talked about baseball. We've talked about a little bit of football. But there's still 90 minutes to go. We've got lots to talk about here in the world of sports and statistics. Stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host and friend, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, please do. Call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Uh, and thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, for bringing us back with some uplifting music this morning. Thank you, Dion. Um, one of the things, Shane, I always talk about that's really my f- most fun of doing the show, besides sitting with three friends every week for five and a half years, is the guests that we have on the show. And so we're really lucky to have Ian Levy on the show. Ian is creative editorial director for Fansided.com. He manages part of the NBA's verticals, The Step Black and Nylon Calculus. He's written for 538, Sporting News, and lots of other places. So, Ian, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my co-host, Shane Jensen. Thanks a lot for having me on, guys. Oh, it's great to have you. So let me start, obviously, with, you know, Shane and I talked about a little bit in the first half hour, but we'd love to get your perspective because we know you've done some analysis. Tell us your thoughts about Kobe Bryant, whether it's you could tell a personal story, anything you want, but tell us how you view Kobe and what I the word I use is the pantheon of NBA players. What do the numbers say? How great was he in his prime? What I know you've done a lot of analysis on this. Yeah, he's a fantastic player, and, um, you know, the the story is so tragic, you know, his ending and, and um, you know, all, all of the circumstances about uh, what happened this weekend are so tragic, and um, uh, something like that sort of has a way of kind of codifying a, a player's legacy. Um, so, obviously, he was a fantastic player, um, you know, 20 years with the Lakers, uh, multiple championships, uh, you know, scoring titles, uh, MVP, finals MVP. Uh, you know, he sort of had all of those individual accolades. Um, it's he's he's one of those players who I think has often sort of been a flashpoint for conversations between um, maybe a, a more traditionalist view of basketball and people who are sort of more invested in in analytic measures. Um, I think. Why do you say uh, that? I, I agree with you, but why? I, just for our <laughs> listeners, because you're right. There's been a lot of debate since his death about. You know, or even prior to his death, when Phil Jackson came out and said Michael Jordan was better, and he quoted a bunch of analytics. So, what analytics makes you say that? Although, let me just say, the data supports your comment. 
Yeah, I think uh, you know he's a player whose strengths maybe resonated more in, in the uh, in the aesthetic realm. Um, you know, he was a guy who made difficult shots, uh, you know, sort of notable shots, the kinds of things that end up on the highlight reel. Uh, but he also took a lot of really difficult shots, and so um, you know his efficiency was not necessarily elite for a high volume score. I think that's the uh, when you think about sort of uh, buckets of of, of uh, players, sort of uh, generic classifications, you'd put him in that role, sort of a high volume scorer, uh, a high volume creator. Um, you know, was was never uh, sort of elite in the in the realm of efficiency, like you'd maybe talk about a player like Stephen Curry or or uh, James Harden. Um, I, I think you could make the argument that he was never really the the best or the most dominant player in the league at any point in his career. You know, he was always playing uh, contemporary with uh, you know Shaquille O'Neal, a, a teammate. Uh, you know, Tim Duncan, um, you know, even in the year that he won MVP, I think, you know, there were arguments that, you know, other players may have even been more dominant that year. And so, uh, you know, I think he's a player who statistically gets a, a boost from longevity for having played 20 years. Uh, you know, his, his volume measures uh, are incredible. Um, you know, now fourth on the scoring list, you know, passed by LeBron uh, right before he, uh, before Kobe passed away. Um, so he gets that boost, but when you sort of slice down each individual layer, his best seasons don't necessarily measure up with uh, the best seasons by by some other elite players. And when you sort of look at the arc of his prime, uh, you know, his peak was never quite as high, even if it, you know, maybe lasted a little bit longer than some other guys. Yeah, so it's interesting that you frame it that way, even it would be great for you to talk about this and our listeners for here on Wharton Moneyball. When you evaluate players and think about their careers, do you, you know, we've always had this, it's not really a debate, because I think it's a subjective thing. How do you think about peak performance versus kind of, well, this person didn't have the peak season someone else had, but they had eight really good seasons? How do you kind of think about that trade-off when, whether it's, you know, you're working for the end, doing stuff for fan-sided or you're writing stuff mm -hmm. for 538 or Sporting News? How do you think about, I'll call it, you know, peak versus a longer period of time where the person was just really, really good? I think from a media standpoint, when you're telling the story of a player, you are trying to um, explain the course of their career, contextualize their story, sort of put them in comparison with uh, contemporaries or maybe making a comparison to you know a player from a different area, from a different era. I, I think the most important thing is just defining what the arc of their career was. I don't know that necessarily one is better or worse at least uh, from my standpoint, you know, if you're, um, you know, if you're putting a team together and you're looking at a young player, then, uh, you know, maybe the idea of peak performance versus longevity has real sort of tangible consequences for your team. Do you want to, um, you know, do you want to open your championship window as wide as possible or for as long as possible? Those are, are questions that are sort of more for front office uh, people than, you know, for somebody in the media. So for somebody like Kobe, you know, if you're making a comparison to Jordan or you're making a comparison to LeBron or, or just trying to put him in the context of, of Duncan and Dirk and Nash and, and, and O'Neal and those contemporaries, I think the most important thing is just trying to define the, the arc of his career as accurately as possible. Um, you know, whether his peak higher than Shaq's, um, you know, or whether his, his uh, window, you know, the, the length of his peak was longer than somebody like Dirk's or some, or something like that. I, I don't think it matters as much in in um, in the comparison as, as much as just sort of being descriptive. 
Yeah, I, I have. I kind of want to follow up on that by asking. I mean, because I, I, I totally agree that defining somebody's career arc is a big part of kind of understanding how they fit into this, the, the the kind of pantheon of greats. Another component to that, and I'd like to hear kind of your how much you think this is important. In basketball is is defining kind of their role or play style, and in, in, in something like NFL. You know, we, we never compare, you know, we never say like, oh, like, how does Tom Brady compare to Jerry Rice? Because it's, mm-hmm. you know, we always kind of focus on like, you know, we, we understand that the role that they play is is so specialized and we only want to mm-hmm. compare quarterbacks to quarterbacks. But obviously, role and play style is a little bit more kind of nebulous in, in the NBA. You talked about him being kind of a high-volume score, uh, kind of a high-volume shooter. Should we only really kind of compare Kobe to other high-volume shooters? Is it possible to compare him to somebody who has a different kind of play style? Well, yeah, again, I think it kind of, dep- it kind of depends on what you're after. I mean, there are overall metrics um, that uh, can make, you know, fairly reasonable estimates of a player's uh, overall value, um, regardless of position uh, or role. Um, I, I guess if you kind of think of, of sports on a, on a spectrum, um, I don't know the analytics in other sports quite as well, but I would think of football uh, being on one end of the spectrum where things are hyper uh, specialized, hyper focused. Like you, like you said, you could not really compare the value of a quarterback to the value of a a wide receiver. It's just totally different. Um, And I think basketball is sort of more on the other end of the spectrum where, uh, you know, players have different roles, different responsibilities on the court, but the nature of the game, the nature of what's tracked and what's trackable uh, makes it a little bit easier to sort of isolate a player's value. So I think you can, um, you know, I think you can compare uh, the overall uh, impact or value of of Kobe versus Shaq or versus Tim Duncan um, or versus, uh, you know, even Pau Gasol. Um, I know that's one of those uh, sort of analytic sticking points around Kobe is that by a lot of overall metrics, uh, Pau was a more impactful player in that sort of second championship window of Kobe's career. Um, and I know that's uh, a, a point of contention. Um, it, it misses the idea that those players had sort of different and distinct roles and that if you you know, if you swapped things and sort of gave Powell the, the offensive responsibility that Kobe carried, um, even if he was shooting from different places on the floor or sort of going about it in a, in a different way, if you gave Powell Kobe's shots and gave Kobe's, uh, you know, gave Powell's shots to Kobe, they might not have been impactful in the same way. But um, you can get it measures of defense. Um, you can get it measures of, of uh, you know, sort of this holistic thing. You know, we can uh, infer uh, things about spacing and uh, players' effect on the defense, even when they don't have the ball. Um, you know, turnover rate, ability to, to draw fouls, and um, you know, put teams uh, into into the penalty, things like that. So, I think there's a lot more context that's available, and I think you can compare players outside of of roles. Um, you can make a, a finer comparison if you are com- comparing players with really similar roles. You know, if you want to compare Kobe to Jordan to to Harden or something like that, there's less gray area. There's less places that you no- need to sort of overlook. Um, so you, you can sort of do both things. It just depends on what you're after. So we're here talking to Ian Levy. Ian is creative editorial director for Fansided.com. He's also manager of the NBA's verticals, The Step Black and Nylon Calculus. Um, this is Eric Brother. I'm here, professor of marketing and statistics. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, please call 
us at 1-844-WARDEN. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Ian, we've spent a bunch of time already talking about, let's call it retrospectively, on <laughs> Kobe's career. Um, I know you also did an analysis of someone that's got a wee, little, little, little career of just three games so far, Zion Williamson. So... What do you see for Zion, and how are you seeing, you know, what kind of analytics or projection or analysis can one do when one has so little data, but it's impressive data? Yeah, he's been fantastic his first three games. Um, you know, he did a quick piece uh, off the, uh, you know, his, his sort of that explosive first game, um, and the, the result was sort of a, a You mean a 17 very, points, uh, 17 points in three minutes you consider explosive? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, a very uh, sort of generic catch-all single-game metric called game score. Uh, he had, um, you know, a, a very strong performance as far as rookies. It's even stronger if you filter it down to just rookies who were teenagers. Um, and it's even stronger if you filter it down to rookies who um, were teenagers who played as few minutes as he did in the debut. I think he only played 17 or 18 minutes. Um, and game score is a cumulative metric. So if you sort of wait by minutes, uh, then it was a, a real outlier. Nobody had ever been that good, that young, and that few uh, minutes uh, in their rookie debut. I think Zion's a really interesting player because – his he he's both a really high floor uh sort of prospect and a high ceiling prospect you talk about his floor um you know he's so athletic he's so strong he's so quick for his size um that he's you know he's going to be able to contribute uh as a finisher um you know as somebody who's rebounding uh, a secondary uh, rim protector in the paint he's going to make an impact there no matter what and those skills are sort of well established and that's what we're already um that's what we're already seeing, you know, sort of early in his career. He's going to rebound, he's going to challenge shots, and he's going to finish anything uh, around the basket, and, you know, shooting 63.3% through four games. Um, and then you talk about his ceiling, you know, we see flashes of him, um, you know, maybe as, an, uh, as a viable off-the-dribble creator, as a passer, uh, as a shooter, a I think that three-point performance in his first game, you know, might not be indicative of, of his true skill level right now. Um, but, you know, if, if those skills develop, shown uh, some positive indicators, and if those skills develop, then, may, you know, maybe we're talking about a really special sort of historic kind of player. Um, and so, so anyway, for a guy with four games, I think you lean a lot on the numbers from college and the, the things that you saw in college that you think are really transferable. And that's, you know, things like rebounding is one of the most transferable skills. If you're a, if you're a really good rebounder in college, chances are you're going to be a really good rebounder, uh, in the NBA. Uh, and same thing with, with touch finishing around the basket. You know, he was an exceptionally, uh, efficient scorer at Duke in part because he could finish anything around the basket, not just highlight dunks. But, you know, soft finishes, touches, finger rolls, layups. And, um, you know, I think we're already seeing that in his first four games. So you you don't have a massive concern. Like the only concern I have of him coming out is, you know, matter of fact, our associate producer and I, Deion Simpkins, broke a rule. We were talking about stuff before the show started. But one of the players we were talking about, I know Matt Datz is shaking his head, don't do that. We were talking about Charles <laughs> Barkley. And I'm not saying Zion is Charles Barkley or he isn't. But, like, if you think about Charles Barkley, incredible athlete, incredible finisher, but didn't really have a traditional position in the NBA as a six foot four power forward. Are you at all concerned that Zion kind of is, you know, just a positionless player? And maybe that's the NBA of today, positionless players. How, how do you view that? 
Yeah, I think he's probably in a better position to succeed now in, in that regard than he would have been if he'd come in the league in the mid-80s like Barkley. Um, I think the um, – I think teams are more creative and open-minded about how they use players with unique skill sets, you know, who don't fit in sort of traditional uh, body skill mold, body skill combinations. Um, and the game is just sort of moving in that direction. It's more open court. There's more space on the floor because of three-point shooting. Um, things are moving faster, you know, than they did a decade and a half ago. Uh, so I think there's probably more room for, for Zion to be successful um, in that regard. I don't worry so much about his position. I think he's, you know, he's looks pretty much like he's going to be a four, uh, you know, being six foot six, you would think that's a detriment on paper, but he has a healthy wingspan. You know, his strength means he's going to be, uh, be able to bang with, with big bodies. Um, you know, traditionally you think about a smaller and undersized uh, front court player. That's kind of the worry is that somebody bigger and stronger can sort of uh, overpower them in the low post. Nobody, nobody's <laughs> going to do that to Zion. Um, so, yeah, I, I think those, those concerns are, are uh, you know, um, not not a big deal when you're projecting his future. So I know you actually just mentioned about rebounding and other stuff. I know you've done some recent studies with, and it's kind of one of the things that we in analytics are most excited about now is tracking data. So could you tell mm -hmm. us about the study you did with tracking data, rebounding, positioning, et cetera? Because I think a lot of our listeners love to hear examples of how, in some sense, modern technology and data has really changed how we evaluate players. Yeah, so this one was interesting, and I, I should uh, I'll I'll point out uh, two uh, things that people might have missed. So one is uh, you know we ran this at Nylon Calculus, the site I oversee, uh, and the people responsible for this, Todd Whitehead, is the one who did the analysis. Uh, but the data itself uh, came from Daryl Blackport, who's a, an independent contributor. He helps us out with stuff, uh, and he's built a great website called pbpstats.com. Um, and it's mostly things that are just called from play-by-play -play, uh, data feeds. And uh, so it's a lot of things that are theoretically should be available at other sites. It's all public data. Uh, but he's just put more work into sort of tweaking and, and giving you more filters and more things to look at. Um, but anyway, the, the tracking data that he put together is actually different than the optical tracking data that Second Spectrum uh, provides the NBA uh, and that most teams use. All that stuff is uh, is private. The NBA has some um, variations that they make public, you know, like you can look up a player's catch-and-shoot three-point percentage, and the underlying data for that is optical tracking. You can't get the raw data. Um, you know, you can no longer get um, XY coordinates from the optical tracking data for a shot or a rebound or anything like that. So anyway, uh, Daryl Blackport has uh, begun uh, an ambitious uh, project to try and hand track uh, rebounding. Um, so up, up till now, he's logged by hand uh, 4,000 missed shots. He's done just Lakers and Raptors games this year, so you're getting a decent sample, uh, you know, with all of their opponents. Um, so anyway, this this uh, rebound analysis that Todd Whitehead put together confirmed some things we already knew. You know, if you shoot closer to the basket, the rebound's likely to be uh, grabbed close to the basket. If you shoot a, a long shot, a long two or three pointer, it's more likely that the rebound goes a little bit longer. Um, and one of the interesting things that I think came out of Todd's study was the idea that um, long shots, uh, 
the, because the rebounds go a little bit longer, that there may be sort of a strategic opportunity um, to not necessarily fully cr- crash the glass, not necessarily send players all the way to the rim trying to corral that offensive rebound, uh, but to send players to kind of the soft middle, uh, you know, to have players sort of uh, half crashing the glass uh, and going uh, uh, moving in around the free throw line, the elbows, and trying to get those long rebounds there. One of the big issues with offensive rebounding, one of the trade-offs we've seen is that it's um, teams are more aware of the, the cost of, right, of crashing ex- exactly. the glass, which is transition defense and, and that trade-off. And so um, I think the idea that Todd was playing with is that there's some middle ground where you could you know, have players around the, the free throw line looking for those longer rebounds and not necessarily be sacrificing as much in transition defense. That's a really amazing insight, and uh, I'll be interested to see, given you know, I played basketball as a kid, we're all trained to crash the glass, and so it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see how it's enacted. We only have about 30 seconds left. Um, what team should we be looking at this year that's maybe flying a little bit under the radar? Um, you know, it's hard to say. I think the Clippers maybe have underperformed, uh, uh, a little bit relative to expectations. I think they're, um, you know, they looked like such an overwhelming favorite going into the season. They're, they're still right there. Second best record in the West. Uh, but I think as we get into the playoffs, they've their uh, chemistry to this point has been hurt by injuries, by so many players missing time. If they're really all healthy when they get into the playoffs, when their rotation gets shorter, fewer minutes for you know Mo Harkless and Jamichael Green, and they've got their core on the floor more, I think they could really be a, a sleeping giant. Well, Ian, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. We've been talking to Ian Levy, Ian's creative uh, editorial director for Fansided.com, manager of the NBA's verticals, The Step Black. And nylon calculus he's written for 538 and he's now been a multiple time visitor here on morton moneyball so ian thank you for joining us this morning thanks a lot guys i thought shane just in the last few seconds we have i thought this idea of there this happy middle ground of improving your offense but also not killing yourself on defense was a great insight yeah no and i mean i i think that kind of balance it, it, it's it's we only now do we kind of have the analytics to sort of take that into account Uh, Absolutely. Well, that's been one half of Wharton Moneyball. We've covered lots of sports, but we have a lot more to go. Please stay with us and join us after the break. Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where my three favorite topics, sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning and friend, Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics, some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. here on Sirius XM 132. If you want to join the conversation, please do. There's lots of ways to do it. One is to call in at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. The second way, since we're in the modern world of social media, is to tweet at us, at WMoneyBall. And, of course, we still live in the world of email. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Well, Shane, obviously there's been a lot of news lately out of the baseball world. Some good, some bad. There's been always lots of news out of the baseball world, but pitchers and catchers are coming up yeah, pretty soon. Yeah, no, no, we're cycling up to uh, we're, m- even more news and excitement. We're cycling up to baseball, and we're very fortunate to have Michael Hill 
president of baseball operations for the Miami Marlins on the phone. Um, he served as general manager from 2007 to 2013 before being promoted to his current, uh, current role. And, of course, he played baseball. He's been in lots of different roles in baseball. So, Michael, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Uh, good morning, Eric and Shane. How are you guys doing today? We're doing we're doing fantastic. And assuming you're calling us from Miami, we'll be joining you there tomorrow because we do our we do a special Wharton Moneyball show from Sirius XM from the Radio Row. And of course, given the Super Bowls in Miami, we will be down in Miami tomorrow. Well, I welcome you guys to uh, beautiful South Florida in advance. Uh, the weather's been great. Uh, you guys should look forward for uh, to a tremendous. Uh, uh, weekend and and uh, time here in Miami. Well, before I dive into baseball with you, let me just ask you: um, How much, as president of baseball operations, do you just let's say in general try to learn from other sports? Whether it's how to handle contracts, whether it's the use of analytics, whether it's uh, ways to think about hiring coaches, whether it's on-field strategy, are there ways that are easily learned from other sports? Or, you know, there's so much in baseball already that you have to kind of just dive in and focus on baseball. Uh, I think we're always looking at ways uh, to improve. And you look at your counterparts in the other sports and and I am friends with the local GM here, the Miami Dolphins. I'm also friends uh, with other GMs in football as well as basketball. Uh, our sports are different, uh, but it's still highly competitive uh, across all sports. And, and so it's nice to share thoughts, uh, especially when you talk about scouting development and, uh, and the competition on the, the field or court. Um, there's things that, that you know, that carry over from sport to sport. And so I actually enjoy um, sharing thoughts and ideas with, uh, with my counterparts from other sports. So could you, let me ask a, a, maybe a strange question. Then I promise to dive into baseball because i got a thousand questions. <laughs> um, would you hire, let's imagine there was a really successful general manager from a different sport, let's say football or basketball. Would you hire her or him? into a senior leadership role in baseball because they've shown excellence in leadership, decision-making, maybe the use of analytics in one sport? Or is there such intrinsic – this is also about your transition – is there such intrinsic knowledge about baseball that you could be a great analyst, you could be a great manager, you could be a great motivator, but baseball's just different? How do you think about that? Um, I, have, I would think you have to look at the, uh, at the candidate and, and their experiences. A uh, perfect example is uh, is Paul De Podesta with the Cleveland Browns. That was who I was thinking of. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Depot and I were were classmates at Harvard, and his career started in baseball, and then he transitioned to football, and it, it was seamless because he he did he was a member of the football team um, at Harvard. Um, I really just think it, it's based on the individual and their experiences, and and if they have an understanding of of the sport. Uh, I think you know all of those qualities that you mentioned. As long as they have some type of foundation in the sport that that you're looking to hire them in, um, I'd see no issue with with that being a possibility. Could you tell us a little bit? You also you just mentioned your time at Harvard, and we know we saw you obviously played professional baseball. Could you tell us how? you made that transition like did you always think you wanted to be into let's call it baseball management once your playing career was over and if the answer is yes how did you prepare for it as a student while you were taking courses and stuff and if the answer is no how did it fortuitously happen well if we're being completely transparent my my ideal 
an original plan was to have a 20-year Hall of Fame major career. Uh, <laughs> you too? Yeah, you yeah. A lot closer than Shane and me. Yeah, but no, yeah. it's true. I, I also had that. I had a plan to be shortstop for the Red Sox. I'm still working on it. So that that was the original plan. But uh, as we all know, uh, life is, is a game of adjustments. And, and uh, as I got in the, into pro baseball and, and had a number of lingering in, injuries uh, that carried over from college football and into baseball, and, and truthfully, it was just a lot of research. I had friends who had been drafted, who had been a part of professional baseball. They, I had asked a lot of questions you know, through college um, of my professional friends and, and people working in the industry of just what the actual path to, to prospect and, and to the major leagues was. And, and generally, uh, the information I got that was within three years or so, you would know if you were a prospect and if you truly had a – a path to the big leagues and and when i looked up at my professional career and after three years i was on the disabled list and i was still an a ball um i felt like it was it was time to transition uh as a player i always uh took the opportunity to speak to as many people as possible uh scouts coaches managers uh front office people behind home plate and uh, it was one of those chance encounters um as a player that ultimately led to to my opportunity and my first job uh, in baseball with the with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. So, could you tell us how um, you know you've obviously now been in the game for you're a young man, you know, well at least compared to me. I, you know, by the way, with, I almost feel like we're sitting here at the Wharton School, but I almost feel like the Harvard Channel here. You went to Harvard. Both Shane and I were PhD students at Harvard, so we all share a Harvard. As a matter of fact. If you graduated Harvard in 93, you and I shared almost all of our years at Harvard because I was there as a Ph.D. student from 88 to 93. So we certainly were on campus at the same time. Um, could you tell us how, in some sense, the game has changed in the 15 to 20 years you've been involved in the game? And obviously, since we're an analytics show, any thoughts that you have about how analytics has played a larger role in the games uh, during your tenure? Oh, uh, I Definitely the game has changed. Uh, I started in the front office in 1995. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm about to start my 26th season in the front office. And, and uh, we've definitely seen the game change. And, you know, it's appropriate. You know, this is the, the money ball. Pro- you know, that era really changed the game of baseball. It brought a lot of notoriety to just the, the use of statistics and how it impacts decision-making. Uh, for for major league organizations and it had already started uh, because bill james had had already started the process in boston with the red sox Uh, but but truly that that time and era in our game and and the notoriety that the book and the and the and the movie brought to 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 the statistics really brought it to life and i think it's just grown um, from that day forward and i think that's been you know, there, there's other areas where, where the game is, is pushing forward and, and, and trying to find, you know, new areas where you can get that competitive edge. Uh, but I think the statistical growth and the use of metrics and, and clubs uh, using uh, club-specific uh, information and metrics to help uh, their decision-making has, has probably been um, the the biggest change that I've seen in, in my 20-plus years in the front office. Without giving away the secret sauce, um, could you tell us how big a, let's call it a data science or 
Sabermetrics organization does the Miami Marlins have? And can you give us an example, without naming obviously a specific player, of a decision that you guys made or at least um, thought about differently because of the use of analytics? Like how big a group is it? And, you know, what's kind of a, what would be a prototypical decision where, of course, I think you and I would, would agree it's a decision support tool. So you could give us an example of somewhere where analytics supported a decision that you made. No, it's definitely a decision support tool, and and you know as I talk about analytics and 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 its role and and my decision making process, you want to make the most informed decisions possible. So you want, uh, and for us, I, I want the most knowledgeable scouts. I want the, the 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 best video system to allow us to to, to marry you know a narrative from our scouts and and, and what our video is showing. Uh, but then you want your analytics support. And, and that analytic backbone um, to really complete the picture. And I think that's what we've, we've built here in Miami. We have a tremendous analytics group, uh, roughly 12 uh, in our analytics department, and they're a major part of every decision that I make. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you one um, that we feel worked out great for us. Uh, we made a trade last year of Nick, for Nick Anderson, a uh, 29-year-old reliever, uh, who was in the Minnesota system? Uh, we we traded for him as as uh, rosters were being settled uh, um, last November, and you know he was a, a player with a well above average fastball, well above average uh, uh, breaking ball. His breaking ball was a curveball, uh, but when you put him into um, our our shredder, uh, he he really graded out as as an, an incredibly um, valuable high leverage reliever, and uh, when we were able to acquire him, you know, as we as we built our club for 2019, uh, we really felt like this this young man, you know, at 29 years old, you know, was considered a little bit old uh, for someone who's never pitched in the big leagues, had never pitched in the big leagues at 29 years old. Um, we we made the trade, we added him to our 40 man roster. He made our major league team, and uh, he was one of the most dominant relievers. Uh, in baseball last year, we ended up trading him uh, to the Tampa Bay Rays uh, for you know a top 50 prospect at the time, and Jesus Sanchez, and it just fit more with 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 what we were doing organizationally and and building organizational and and, and adding talent to our system. Uh, but had it not been for for our our analytics machine, um, that that talent may have looked and and we. To help him, he wouldn't have been able to help impact our major league club, and then our organization as as we turned him into um, what we feel is an incredibly um, valuable future um, everyday major league outfielder. Well, another part of your organization I'd like to talk about. Um, what since I'm a born and bred New Yorker, and we had also a shortstop that played for a few years uh, for the Yankees. That matter of fact. Maybe twenty, let's just say, um, that may have a role in the Miami Marlins organization. So, could you tell us um, the thoughts? And also, um, for my birthday coming up this week, my family, uh, since I will be at Cooperstown this year to see my Derek Jeter go into the Hall of Fame, could you tell us about the role that Derek Jeter has had and how he thinks about analytics, how he thinks about building a team? How has that gone? Uh, it, it's been it's been tremendous. Uh... And when you think about, you know, someone of, of his pedigree and, and what he has accomplished in the game, you know, he, he really didn't need to do what he did uh, in terms of, 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 of stepping into a front office 
you know, obviously he's, he's part ownership and, and our CEO, uh, but the experience, uh, you know, I, I can't speak to how just incredible it is to have, to have him. And he's in the office every day. Um, I'll see him shortly, uh, just right down the hall from me, uh, because he brings his player perspective and he's, he's transitioned. When you talk about a seamless transition uh, to understanding how we operate in baseball operations, you know, it's not easy when you're talking about a player coming off the field. You know, most players don't really know what happens, you know, behind the, behind the curtain, you know, the, the, the behind the, the scenes work that goes into team building and, and organization building. Um, but, but Derek has a tremendous feel for that and uh, has been a, a tremendous partner for me um, as we've, you know, embarked on, on building a championship organization here in Miami. So we're here talking to Michael Hill. Michael is currently president of baseball operations for the Miami Marlins. He serves as GM of the team also from 2007 to 2013. So this is Eric Brother. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. One of the things I wanted to ask you, especially I always think of this as synonymous with the Miami Marlins, is kind of I always think of you as like the phoenix of baseball, like you rise from the dead. Like, you know, you guys are one of those teams that has won multiple championships um you know people say wow the miami marlins are you know they're not very good but you know every five or six years you seem to rise from the dead and i noticed that um there's been a lot of data that suggests you have one of the best farm systems right now could you talk to us about in some sense you know you're not the largest market team you don't have the largest budget and how you're thinking about you know i'll call it successfully like the organization has done many times rising from the dead again yeah, I, I think uh, the the biggest uh, uh, when you look at how we're we're building things in Miami, I think we're trying to you know rid ourselves of the moniker of, of rising from the dead and build something sustainable. And and I think that you know having been here and been a part of the organization, it was always a challenge, you know, given you know market and attendance and and various things that that impacted you know putting something sustainable on the field. Uh, I think that's been. Uh, a, a very much a focus of the new ownership group with with Bruce Sherman and Derek is building something sustainable. And uh, the the first thing that we did as as we made our decisions uh, was to make sure that we had a strong minor league system, um, one with layers of talent, uh, one that would allow us to to withstand, you know, not just you know what happens over the course of of, of one season and 162 games, but but year in and year out, give ourselves every opportunity to be successful. And uh, that's something I'm extremely proud about. Our entire baseball operations uh, team is proud of because you know, as the new ownership group came aboard in October of 2017, uh, we were ranked anywhere 29, 30 in all of baseball with our farm system. And it, it, it's difficult, you know, given um, our market size to, to compete when you don't have a farm system. Everything has to go right and you have to be incredibly lucky and we know that's difficult over a long season and in, in, in a little over two years uh, through our drafts, through our trades, um, through our signings, you know, our, our minor league system is, is somewhere top three in all of baseball and we put ourselves in a position uh, for, for long-term and sustainable winning and, and something that you know is a credit to, to Derek and our ownership group because they understand you know that that's where Derek came from. He he came through the system with with Posada and Mariano and with Bernie and 
and they, he understands that if you don't have a strong minor league system, it's difficult to have anything sustainable. Let me also say that um, before I turn it over to Shane Jensen, who has a question, um, I'm going to use a Shane Jensenism here to make a point, which is everything you're saying agrees with analytics, and let me say why. Since most people know that once you make the playoffs in baseball, it's a coin flip, you want to flip lots of coins. So if you're going to say to yourself, well, we're going to be great for this one year, all right, you might be great for that one year, and then you have a one in eight chance of make of winning the World Series like the other teams. So I like the concept of sustainability. You want twenty coin flips over the next twenty years. You don't want to flip one what you think is high probability coins. I just wanted to point out, Michael, that what you're saying is very consistent with a team that wants to win the championship. No, very, very much so, and and I think that there's been a, a lot of uh, time and. And, uh, and brain power just going into to how we build it and, and the decisions that we make. And, and uh, as I said, analytics are, are very much a part of, uh, of our daily operation. Uh, yeah, Michael, my kind of question is about sort of like how one, like what, what, what would you say are the biggest challenges to maintaining sustainability? Are, are there kind of, I mean, you, you could imagine that, you know, in terms of sustainability, you're, you're challenged by like kind of forces of parity trying to, you know, make sure that, you know, the really good successful teams don't have the high draft picks. Um, can you kind of a little talk about like sort of like what challenges you into? I mean, obviously building sustainability is a challenge, but once you have it, what what do you kind of see it as the main forces that are, are going to oppose you in kind of perpetuating that sustainability over time? I would say emotional decisions and lack of patience, <laughs> things that, uh, that, you know, you can't often control, but are very much a part of, of a competitive environment. Um, it's very, you know, we always preach about, you know, three most important words when you, when you're trying to build and it's patience, patience, patience. And, and it's true, uh, because we're all competitors in this industry and we want to win. And, and, you know, in today's society, everyone's looking for the quick fix and the, and the quick win and the shortcut. Um, and it takes patience and it, and it, and it takes a strong will, um, to stick to your plan, to execute your plan, to follow through with your plan. Uh, and it's something that, you know, as we look to, to, to be sustainable, you know, this offseason was a perfect example um, for us as, you know, as, as our uh, upper-level talent uh, approaches the big leagues. You know, you just want to be mindful of, of how it all fits and not to make decisions, uh, rash decisions, emotional decisions in the near term um, that will eventually impact your, your long-term success. Yeah. Uh, another question I wanted to ask you about is there something, you know, at least the buzz that's just coming out of Major League Baseball right now is that the National League may move to the DH. And so at least that's the, the rumor is that it's going to happen by 2021 or something like that. Uh, Two-part two question. One is, um, as obviously someone like me, you have to be a historian of the, of, of the game of baseball if you're a president of baseball operations for a major team. How do you think about that from both a historical perspective and then the impact it would likely have on your franchise if it were to happen? Well, I'm I'm born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, with the Big Red Machine, and so I'm a I'm a baseball purist at heart. Um, so if 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 the DH were to come, you know, with the net the the new collective bargaining agreement in in 22, you know, obviously it, it would be a, a beyond my control uh, if it were to happen. But as a purist, um, I love the strategy of the National League game. I love the double switch. I love you know the ability of a manager. Um, to either run a bullpen or not run a bullpen, I think that's uh, that 
that's the purest in me speaking. Uh, but when you look at our game and, and where it's at right now, you know, people want defense. And, you know, if it, if our game were in, our, in the National League were to go to the National League, uh, it's, a, it's a change and it's an adjustment for us. Uh, but I think we're, we're very much equipped um, to, to handle it and deal with it. And, and uh, I think, you know, we'll, we'll make that adjustment uh, seamlessly if and when uh, that time comes. The, actually, the, our, our four Wharton Moneyball hosts and our producer, Matt Datz, were having a debate uh, via text message when we saw that story. And I, I made a comment, and I wanted to get your opinion on whether it's true. Do you think if a pitcher has to spend time thinking about hitting – he would be less effective as a pitcher. In other words, if you took whatever time pitchers spend hitting, which probably isn't a lot anyway, but it, like, does does making them hit make them worse pitchers? I do not think so. I think it makes them a more complete player, uh, in my opinion, and and I think that's a, that's a big difference when you look at the American League and National League. Now we do um, commit time um, with our pitchers to to handling the bat. Uh, it's part of their job. It's part of uh, uh, an opportunity for them to help themselves and help the team. And so we take it very seriously. And, and you look at, at some of the better hitting uh, pitchers in the National League, and they take pride in it. Uh, when you look at Max Scherzer and, and, and Strasburg and, and even Zach Grinke when he was in our league, you know, those guys. They're decent pitchers. They're back. decent pitchers, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, they're all decent pitchers. <laughs> Uh, and I don't think the, the offensive side of the game impacted their, their ability to pitch. Um, but you saw time and time again where they helped themselves by their ability to get the bunt down or to get the runner over or to even get a timely hit. And uh, I think that's a, a beauty of the game that, you know, if we do go to DH, you know, I, I'll hate to lose it. Um, but I understand that, you know, the, the, the big thing, and, and we talked about how the game has changed, you know, since I started is the, the game's evolving and it, it evolves with the times and, and, the, and the desires of, of the fan base. And, and I think it's, you know, it's our job as the custodians to, to do what we think is in the, in the best interest. And, and ultimately, if, if that is it, then uh, I'll support it and uh, we'll, we'll do our best to, to, to find the best DH we can to help our club win as many games as possible. Let me ask you a series of questions about that. So as you guys, obviously not any specific situation, when you're thinking about contracts, how much does analytics play a role? Not just internally, but let's even imagine you know, you're you sitting across from an agent of a given player and the agent says, I think this player is worth $18 million a year. And then you look at your spreadsheet and you say, well, here's the thing. $18 million a year players tend to have this OPS or this strikeout rate, and this player's just not one of them. Am I fantasizing a dream that, like, you guys have some spreadsheet or something with you and it's actually being used in negotiations, or would that not ever really be brought up at the time of discussing a contract? Um, it, it, it 100% happens, and it's not just a spreadsheet. It's an entire computer system uh, and database um, that you're using to help you um, get to that decision. Um, obviously, age is, is comes into the equation as well um, when you're talking about those those, those decisions. But um, most clubs, and I don't want to say all, but I would say most clubs have uh, numerous models um, that they utilize to, to help um, work through all of that data, um, chopping up the, the player's performance, his aging curve, 
uh, and and you have a fairly uh, good idea of, of of his performance moving forward. So when you have that conversation with the agent, you're working off a of real data um, that that gives you historical support as to players like the the available player and his performance and and his aging decline and and everything that that potentially could impact. Uh, his ability to help your club. How, how does the Marlins think about him? And we've talked about it on this show many times, you know, while I'm a Yankee fan growing up and, you know, Garrett Cole, we got Garrett Cole, but some people say, wow, that was, or, you know, the Strasburg, you see these 10-year contracts for 30-year-old pitchers and you say to yourself, wow, you know, there's no real chance they're going to get the Garrett Cole for 10 years under some contract. How do you as the Marlins think about Age, I'll use your words, Michael, aging curves. How do you guys think about that, and do you think about it as almost like a trade-off? Like, yeah, you're right, I might have to give up two or three years on the back end to get five or six good years on the front end. Or does Miami say, you know, as a smaller market team with, you know, we don't have 200-plus million to spend, we just can't afford to do that. How do you think about that philosophically? Uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because what immediately comes to mind when you see a contract like that, in my mind, is the value of, of scouting and development and, and identifying, you know, that, that starting pitching um, that you have internal um, so that you don't have to, to go to the market. You know, that's one of the things that, you know, we look at our off season and what, what we've been able to accomplish this off season. We didn't have to shop in the, in the starting pitcher market. Um, we have um, at least 10 starting pitchers to compete um, for our five-man rotation, we have another five at AAA. We have another five at AA. Uh, and that is all intentional of, of building layers of starting pitching um, to, to, to speak to that, you know, opportunity to, to be sustainable. Uh, you know, that, that was the first thing that comes to my mind is that we have to continue uh, to do a, a tremendous job, and it's a challenge to, to our amateur scouting director and our international scouting director um, that they need to continue to identify starting pitching. Uh, because you know, is it the best? Is it the best uh, allocation of our dollars um, to spend you know three hundred some million on a starting on one player? And that that's part of the decision making process. And and when something like that happens, I, I immediately turn to our system and and how we need to continue to build depth. And, uh, and put ourselves in a position where we don't have to do that. So you actually, this is one of those things I call it as a host here, uh, you're just throwing me a softball, because unlike you who played professional baseball, I can only hit softballs at a small speed. I can't hit baseballs at a fast speed. Um, <laughs> do you, When you think about building your team, do you think pitching first, defense first, or do you think offense first? Like, as we all know, all you have to do is outscore the other team, and you do that enough games and you win. But do you think there's, like, like you know, People have the story, defense wins in football. And now in the NBA, it appears you better be able to shoot threes. You know, um, how has analytics helped you think about your philosophy of building a team? Pitching, defense, offense, how has it helped you think about where to optimally allocate your resources, as you just described? Uh, I'm, I'm all, I've always been a pitching guy. I was a position player. <laughs> as a position player, as, as a player. Um, but you just look, and, and this is where at least my own experiences and, and my history within the game, uh, you obviously need offense, and, and I recognize that. And we spent a lot of our offseason this, this offseason adding offense, uh, but you're not, in my opinion, you don't win championships unless you have frontline starting pitching. Uh, so obviously you want everything, 
Um, but you you have, in my opinion, no chance if you have, if you don't have frontline starting pitching, and and uh, and it's always been a focal point um, for me, uh, and 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 how I look to and to build a, an organization um, that you you need you need those horses, and you need those guys that that every day give you an opportunity to win uh, because they're going deep in games and and uh, and and you saw it firsthand. Um, and the run through the playoffs for the Washington Nationals uh, and the Houston Astros and, and any other club that, that you've seen hoist the trophy. Um, I go back to my own experience of, of our World Series in 03 uh, when, with the pitching that we had. Uh, you, don't, you, and you don't win uh, the ultimate prize um, without special frontline starting pitching. So maybe, Michael, one last question. Obviously, wins and losses is how we all measure success, but – how do you think about success for the 2020 season for the Marlins? What, whether it's advanced metrics, are you going to look at? Because the one loss is going to be the win loss, and obviously you hope it's a lot of wins. You're obviously, since you're in the same division as our Philly, we're you're in a very tough division in baseball. You know that. Um, how do you think about success and what would define it from both a metrics point of view at, for for the upcoming season? Well. We keep it simple, and uh, and our CEO keeps it simple. I mean, wins and losses matter, and, and obviously we we put a lot of work uh, behind getting uh, those wins and losses. Um, but for us, we want to continue pushing. We want to continue pushing forward. Uh, we we know where we are organizationally. Uh, we feel like we've built um, ourselves up, and we're on solid foundation now. And now it's about moving forward and, and getting ourselves in a position to, to win and, and, and compete for the ultimate prize. And, and I think that is how we will ultimately judge our 2020 season is, is how much progress we've, we've made um, specifically with, with that um, aspect of, of, our, of our build. Well, I will say that just as a biased person um, with uh, obviously Derek Jeter playing a large part of your organization and someone in my youth who played a large part in my youth, Donnie Baseball, playing a large part of your organization, um, I wish you luck because you're obviously a smart man. Not only did you go to Harvard like Shane and me, but you're hiring lots of Yankees. And I, I've got to admit, uh, I like the idea of bringing in that winning pedigree. No Red Sox, just Yankees. Shane's a Red Sox. In fact, Shane's oh, sitting opposite oh, for me with a Red Sox hat on. You're me with all this. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> well, Michael, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball, and uh, good luck in the upcoming season. Thank you so much, gentlemen. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. So we've been talking to Michael Hill, president of baseball operations for the Miami Marlins. Um, and from Morton Moneyball's point of view, it's never too early to start talking about baseball. So this has been three quarters of Morton Moneyball. We have kind of open air segment in the last one. We're obviously going to talk a lot about NFL. Please stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my friend and co-host this morning, professor of statistics Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner, here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. You can also listen to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and lots of other places. Just go to your favorite browser and type in Wharton Moneyball, and it's not hard to listen to us. It's also not hard to join the show. If you want to call us, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine. 
888-942-7866. So, Shane, obviously this morning we spent a lot of time talking NBA. We've spent a lot of time, obviously, we just got off the phone with uh, Michael Hill talking about baseball. We spent a little time talking about football, although we're going to talk about more. But there's also this big, important tennis tournament going on now. Yeah, and, and it's it, it's. Uh, I, I I know you've been chomping in the bit to talk about this. I'd like to kind of hear your take. I, let's first talk about the Federer match, and then we we can get to the Nadal theme match. Okay, so actually, there's been two Federer matches actually that um, basically shows not only his greatness, but how hard it is to, in some sense, beat one of these greats. So, two matches ago. Uh, Roger Federer played uh, John Millman, mm-hmm. a very accomplished player from Australia, but certainly not a household name in tennis. Um, they do something which I think is great at the Australian Open. So in the fifth set, it's best of five. If it goes to five sets and it goes to six all, like at Wimbledon, you keep, well, it used to be you keep playing forever until somebody wins by two games. Now it's you go to 12 all at Wimbledon and then they have a tiebreaker, which, by the way, is what happened last year when Djokovic beat Federer mm-hmm. in the finals. What they do at uh, Australian Open is, at 6-all, they go to what's called a super tiebreaker. The first one to 10 points. So not 7 like the others. It's the first one to 10. So Roger Federer and John Millman went to a super tiebreaker in the fifth set. John Millman was up 8-4. to Now, that's a stranglehold. Because remember, you alternate two serves at once. Right. So So, uh, Roger would have to break at least a minimum of two serves. A minimum of two serves. More. And so he was down 8-4, to four, and Millman was playing, like, godlike tennis. Well, the final score was 10-8, to eight, and it wasn't for Millman. Yeah. And so Roger Federer won the last six points of that match and got back and won that match 10-8 to eight in the super tiebreaker. Now, if that wasn't enough, then Roger Federer played a U.S.-based player, actually, a guy by the name of—his name is Tennis. Literally, that's his first name, but it's with a Y. Tennis Sangren was the guy he played. And Roger Federer was kind of got nicked up in the match. He had groin issue type, etc. Was down two sets to one. Won the fourth set in a tiebreaker, of which he saved off three match points. And then eventually he ended up winning the match, but he ended up saving in total seven match points. Now let's let's be clear. I don't know if we want to do um, you know a, a calculation of a half to the seventh. You know, a half to the seventh would be one out of one hundred and twenty-eight. This is another one of those examples yeah. where I'm pretty sure it's the probability is less than that. Like yeah. I, I think the chances of you saving off seven match points um, is probably extremely low. Well, I mean, only because you know you kind of would would push the odd like the odds on each one less than a half. Because if you really are staving off match points, you're probably not in general playing as well as, as the, the other, other player. player, right? So even at a half. Yeah. It goes to one out of 128, and it's probably, as you're saying, significantly less. So the good news for us, for like me, people are huge tennis fans, what that has now led to is a semifinal matchup that's coming. Let's see how many real tennis fans there are, because it's on at 3.30 a.m. I didn't say it wrong. The match is at 3.30 a.m. tomorrow morning, the rematch between Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic. Yeah. Now they have played one time in between the Wimbledon final. I think I talked. I know I talked about this on Morton Moneyball. Roger Federer claimed at the time he played him in. I don't remember what tournament. It was in the finals, and Federer said, "I'm all in. This is the most important match of my career." And he drubbed Djokovic like six one six three. Now Federer has not looked great in this tournament. And Djokovic looks like um, it would take three players on the court at the same time to beat him. Right. But I'm very interested to see that semifinal yeah. match between Federer and Djokovic. 
And and I'm interested to see that we're pretty much guaranteed that one of the big three is not going to is there's going to be a, a, a non big three a member in the finals. Well, this gets to the other side of the yeah. draw, which just literally as we were about to go on the air, Dominic Thiem, who's ranked number five in the world. And by the way, let's not make it seem like he's not a very accomplished player, but it's never no, won a major. I mean, he, he, he's, he's been the person you when we most talk about who is going to break through on this big three, at least among contemporary players, he's one that you bring up a lot. And it's the player he's playing, yeah. Alexander Zverev, who's yeah. number seven in the world. So the two of them have made it through. Theme had to beat Nadal, who he just beat. It's one of my favorite box scores. Um, he beat him 7-6, 7-6, 4-6, 7-6. So he beat him in three tiebreakers. By the way, that's really hard to beat yeah. a great champion in three consecutive tiebreakers in one match. He now plays Zverev, and the winner of that, of course, goes to the finals against Federer Djokovic winner. But this is why I've pointed this out for years. This is why it's hard to break through the big three. You've just had the match of your life. You've just beaten Rafa Nadal. Now, maybe you beat Zverev. Let's call that match a toss-up. Well, look who you're getting in yeah, the finals. Yeah, no, that's right. That's you, right. You always you're guaranteed is, to have to face basically two of these. I, uh, unless oh, there had been yeah. a crazy knockout yeah. like Sangren. Yeah. Let's imagine Sangren had beaten Federer, and maybe Sangren beats Djokovic. So that's who you're playing in the finals. But that's the problem. Yeah. There's always I – mean, in fact, it's the way the draw works. Because there's three of them. Two of them are always on one side of the draw, yeah. one of them on the other. Assuming they all advance, you're going to have to be minimum two of them and maybe three of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the problem. You yeah. can't do it. Yeah. No, and, and I think that's sort of like, I, I think we've kind of, I think any one of these guys, you know, it, 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 do, you, do you sort of agree that like we're kind of in a historically unprecedented era with this big three that's been perpetuating itself or seemingly forever, and it's really because there's three of them that we've kind of, like, there's almost like a positive feedback loop in that, like, even like if we had only Rafael Nadal and Federer, the chance of more people eking through... Much higher. Much higher. So I, I think it's kind of like this big three of almost like, because there's three of them, it's easier to kind of perpetuate this dominance. No, I, I completely agree. Uh, Djokovic said at the beginning of the season he believes this will be the year that someone will break through none of the big three, because I think it's been three or four consecutive years where all the majors have been won by yeah. just the three of those players. Um, I don't know. I don't see it at this tournament. I think theme is playing great. I think he's likely to beat Zverev. I'm just guessing, but I think he's likely to. I just don't see... Well, first of all, I don't see anybody beating Djokovic. But yeah. if Federer happens to be Djokovic, then that shows he's playing extraordinarily well. And I don't see Federer or Djokovic win yeah. or losing in the final. But again, it's a, it's a if, real... If you're theme, who would you rather play in the final? Do you think you'd rather play oh, Federer? No, no you'd question. be cheering for Federer? No question. Yeah. You'd be rooting for Federer. Yeah. I think also stylistically, Djokovic is just going to wear you down. He's going to make you work for every single point. Federer may have... This actually is not unrelated to what Ian Levy was saying. Federer may have higher peak. When Federer's great, Federer's great. Yeah. And Djokovic is always great. Yeah. And Djokovic on every point is great. And Federer, you watch some points, you're like, boy, that was a shanked ball. Or, yeah. wow, that wasn't a great serve. Or, I just think Federer has, the, has this, um, even at 38, has an amazing upside. Djokovic has low variance. Yeah. You know for a fact he's going to come out. He's got the highest out, floor of anybody. He's got the highest floor of anybody. See, I think if you're theme or Zverev, you'd much rather play Federer. And we've talked about this on the show. Federer's 38. 
Maybe Federer wakes up in that finals, and, you know, he's a 38-year-old man. Yeah. You know, he draws from the uh, the bimodal distribution. He draws from the bad hump of the 38-year-old yeah, as I opposed mean, this to the is good sort one. Of, I, and this is when we kind of have talked about, like, who's going uh, – among these big three, who's going to kind of, like, have the most kind of championships over, over time – Federer always kind of gets knocked down on my mind, I think, because I, I think one of the effects of age that we've sort of seen is that this probability of just having a bad match goes right. up, right? And, yeah. and, and And in order to win one of these tournaments, you can't have one of those, like, four or five matches in a row. Like, for four or five matches in a row, you can't have one of those bad matches. So the that kind of, like, thing that disadvantages Federer amongst the big three, it's still probably doesn't say much about how he'd go up against non-Big 3 players. Well, let me just say, by the way, I think a lot of people would say he's lucky to be in the semifinals yeah. uh, right now. Now, what's interesting about this, you know, I also started to think about, you know, now that Rafa lost to Theme, and I started to think about Federer's play, which, you know, again, almost lost to Millman, probably should have, almost lost to Sangren, probably should have. I started to think... One of the things about age, I think this is the difference why I think Djokovic likely will end up with the most majors. I think he's very, very capable right now and would be the heavy favorite on every surface except for clay. And it's not obvious he's not close to Nadal now on clay. Right. He's not the favorite. Nadal's the favorite. Yeah. But he's not a two-to-one favorite against Djokovic. Federer, I think we would probably agree, the only real chance he has is on grass, the fastest surface. Yeah. Nadal is a favorite on clay, but I wouldn't put him as a favorite against Djokovic on any other surface but clay. Yeah. So you just start to think about how many opportunities, like in some sense, let's say Djokovic is at peak for three more years, which maybe is generous, but he'll be 35 then. Well, that gives him 12 chances. Yeah. In my view, Nadal has three good coin flips left, maybe four or five. Federer's 38. Maybe he's got one or two coin yeah. flips left. Yeah. Djokovic is now he is four behind Federer, but he's going to flip a lot of coins. He's got a lot yeah. of coins to flip. No, and it's going to be interesting. I mean, historically, I think it's going to be. Uh, we're going to have to kind of just always talk about these guys together, basically, right? I mean, it, it, it's going to be that 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 big three versus you know kind of the historical greats of yesteryear. But it's it those guys are going to be linked through all time because they say were the contemporaries good news. of each other. When people think of the great times in tennis, now then we move on to another sport. When people think about the great times, I always think about my childhood. Well, there was Borg, McEnroe, and Connors. That was a big three. Yeah. And also, if you want to add on, Yvonne Lendl. Yeah. So, I mean, most great... There was Chrissy Everett and Martina Navratilova playing together. So, you know, I think a lot of people, the downside people say about the Serena Williams here. By the way, everyone agrees she's probably the greatest tennis player of all time. But she didn't play in an era where there was a big two or three. I mean, Serena... Sorry, Venus Williams yeah. has the most majors of anybody that played... She has seven that played in her time period. There is no Martina has 18, Chrissy has 18. Right. McEnroe has seven, Connors has eight, Lendl has eight, Borg has 11. Yeah, as far as kind of solo kind of dominance, I guess exactly. Steffi Graf would be the closest. Graf mapping, would be maybe? the closest. Yeah. Exactly. Graf would be the closest. And she ended up with, I think, I forget, 21 or 22. Just Serena Serena passed Groff, but Groff is up at that yeah. in the twenties as well. So, just quickly before we move quickly to football, there was also some golf that was played this last weekend, which I watched a yeah, lot. Yeah, and this is another sport that I'm excited to kind of cycle up for, kind of like baseball. We come into the season around the same time. With the, I mean, the Masters is really the first tournament of the year that April, I, I, yeah. I get it gets my my major attention. Well, the reason this is an important year for golf is that the um, Olympics is this year in golf, and the way the rules work is. Only four players from a given country at most 
can actually represent a country. Ah. And so the U.S., here's the problem. Yeah. If you're Tiger Woods, as an example, um, so the there's, for example, there's the number one player in the world, Brooks Kepka. He's from the U.S. There's Dustin Johnson, who's the number four or five player in the world. There's Justin Thomas, who I think is the number three player in the world. There's Patrick Reed. And so right now, Tiger Woods has made it his goal to try to make the Olympics, but he has to be in the top four Americans by, I think it's the end of June, it's not obvious he's going to be there. And is 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 it, is it uh, like is it based on a, a world ranking? Correct. Week, uh, or is it's it a, based, a, a yes. decision by a committee? No, or something no, no, like no. That? It's based purely on numbers, on analytics. It's based purely on an ob- you know not an objective. I don't want to call it the world ranking points that you accumulate over some time period. Right. And right, so right. when I was watching Tiger this weekend, obviously I was rooting for him to win. I thought he played terribly this weekend in the sense of. Um, 150 yards from the green, his putt would be 30 feet for birdie. I'm like, 30 feet? Tiger, 150 yards? It should be 8 feet for birdie. I don't think his irons were sharp. The longest putt he hit all week was 15 feet, and that was to save par. I don't think he putted well, and I don't think his irons were that great. And to show you the greatness of Tiger Woods, he ended up ninth. Yeah. And so a bad tournament. Now, this shows me how much his game is almost back. Not saying nothing's going to be back to the old Tiger. Right. But let me just say his stats. Even if you're in the... You know, the uh, environment of the old Tiger, you're doing very, very well. Let's well, let's just do the, the numbers are this. He's played 15 tournaments worldwide since he came back from his surgery, and he's won three of them. That's 20%. Yeah. His historical win rate is 21.7%. And so let's just be clear. Um, his historical win rate at majors, well, he won one, the Masters, and his historical rate of tournaments seems to be at the same level as it was during, let's call it, the first 15 years of his career. So I'm excited to see, you know, how golf progresses over the season. Yeah, I'm excited for it, too. Are, are those, uh, before we move to quickly football, yeah. who else besides Tigers kind of got you excited going into the season? Who do you think is sort of like, you know, going to be... The guy, like, if if you had to predict another golfer that could win a couple, like more than a, more than one major, perhaps it's a good question. Um, Kepka always seems to Kepka, do well in the majors, Kepka would right? Have to be there. His health is an issue right yep. now. You know, he had major knee surgery, pretty major knee surgery. He was out for months, so I think that's one. I think Justin Thomas is always there. I think of the international players. I think John Rahm from Spain is an extraordinarily talented and accomplished player, and of course, a player that's won tons of tournaments is actually. Actually, almost he's number two in the world right now. We can never forget Rory McIlroy, right? I mean, yeah. Rory was in contention at this tournament, uh, didn't end up winning the tournament, but uh, was right there at the end. So, to me, the people I'm excited about are McIlroy, Thomas, Woods, Kepka, Dustin Johnson's a competitor at any major, Patrick Reed. I mean, I think there's a whole slew of players, and that's the thing we've talked about about golf on any given weekend. There's probably 20 to 30 people that could win a given major, and maybe even more. But, I mean, 20 or 30, you could make a very legitimate statistical argument for they're going to get hot that week and win. Yeah, yeah. So that's a fun thing thing about golf. Let's turn our last few minutes to the Super Bowl that's coming up this week. Um, Obviously, the the narrative around this is— the best offense in the league against the best defense in the league. You know, the immovable force versus the whatever, the immovable object versus the irresistible force kind of argument. Um, before we get into the details of the game, you entering the game, would you rather be the statistically best offense in the league, the Kansas City Chiefs, or the statistically best defense in the league, 
the San Francisco 49ers? Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, because I think we've seen, you know, we can come up with Super Bowls past and big games past where either, you know, where where the offense is. I mean, you know, I I think the mantra that most people would go with is you want to go, you know, defense wins championships. I actually don't necessarily believe that. I've seen some dominant offenses tear through defenses. And, you know, I mean, I I think back to a couple years ago when, you know, Philadelphia and and, and New England decided to not play defense for the entire (laughs) Super Bowl. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, it's, I mean, I'm super intrigued and excited for the game because it really could go either way. And I, I, I could talk myself into either one of these teams winning. Um, I, so, you know, I guess as a tiebreaker, I, I, I kind of default to who has the exact, who is the best quarterback and, and we that, know one, who that, that, that one goes for KC. We yeah. know who that is. Oh, despite, as we point out, there's lots of ways to win. Um, if you just look at the win-loss record, there's nothing wrong with Jimmy G's win-loss oh, record. Oh, no, certainly not. And I mean, you know, again, if Jimmy G was the one to kind of, you know, if, if he was able to sort of like, I mean, I, I think a San Francisco win would probably not be via his arm and it would be de- via dominant defense but uh i would love to have him uh have a great game as well my other famous uh comment about the super bowl is there's one player on both teams that's playing for their third ring who's that what's jimmy g jimmy g yeah no so i thought i'd throw for, you a uh, yeah two-time bone super bowl champion yeah no definitely do definitely. you actually play in either game no 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 no, okay. no. no brady does not <laughs> i mean not even a mop-up they, uh, well i mean what, the New England play has played a lot of Super Bowls. Well, none of them have been mo- none like, of them been mop ups. Well, except for the Eagles. The Eagles won by eight or nine or whatever. Yeah. Then eight, it was eight, obviously, because yeah. they had a chance on that last play of the game. So, yeah, they, that's a, well, actually it's another stat we'll talk about. Matter of fact, I want to talk about that for this Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes apparently, thank you to Madden for Zach for putting it in our stats, has never lost a game by more than seven points. That's amazing. Never. So wow. I just think about the Patriots yeah. Super Bowl. You're six and three. And we talked about this. Yeah. They were all one-score games. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was. It was always, you know, a last a, a last-minute thing, so either how, positive or negative. How do you see this Super Bowl playing out? We have a couple minutes left. How do you see it playing out? Well, I think you know, I, I would actually, I, I guess, I would predict a close game, but I don't think it's at all guaranteed. I think, I think, you know, we, you know, it's kind of got a bimodal distribution. I think if it's a blowout, who blows who out? If it's a blowout, I think it's. Kansas City blowing out San Francisco. I think if San Francisco gets a lead on KAC, that I, I mean, I uh, you know by they say ten points, they can kind of run down the yeah, I, I, run down out. the clock with their defense. But I think in that case, it, it, even that case, it'll be more like like San Francisco's best case scenario. I think is what New England did last year with the Rams, exactly right. Where they That's the they, they, they kind of control the entire game, but it never at one point at any point feels like a blowout. Whereas Kansas City's like kind of best path would just be to slice somehow through that San Francisco defense and just put up points to the extent to which San Francisco just can't keep up. Yeah, I'm not a believer, by the way. I remember that, you know, people say San Francisco's defense is great. I remember them playing Seattle a couple weeks ago at the end of the season. I think the final score in that game was was a 33-31. Seattle, which couldn't score on the Eagles in the playoffs, yeah. they sliced San Francisco's yeah. defense. And it I think can we happen. both agree... It's not impossible to imagine Kansas City putting up thirty five. No, in this and this game. is this is the great. You know, you can any 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 personnel kind of advantage can be kind of schemed around, and the unpredictable, the, the the kind of delicious unpredictable ability about this one is both of these teams are really good at scheming. So, in our last five seconds, who's your pick? 
A KC. KC by KC by in a close one. And I'm picking the same. So this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. On behalf of myself, my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen, our producer, Matt Datz, our associate producer, Dion Simpkins, our assistant producer and statistician extraordinaire, Zach Drapkin, we'd like to thank you for joining us on Wharton Moneyball. We'll be heading down to Miami to do our Super Bowl show between now and next week. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your statistics. We'll see you soon on Wharton Moneyball.